In May of 1887, Deputy Marshal Dan Maples was murdered over in the Cherokee Nation. The lawman had been searching for whiskey peddlers, and his killer was initially assumed to be the notoriously violent Bud Trainer. Maples' fellow deputies began searching for Trainer, and when they couldn't find him, they rounded his buddies up instead. One of whom claimed that Maples' true assassin was not Bud Trainer, but instead a local Cherokee by the name of Ned Christie. Now, I did an episode on Ned a very long time ago, link in this episode's description if you're interested, but Christie was almost certainly an innocent man. Hell, he wasn't even a criminal by trade, and he definitely didn't rob no banks or trains or anything like that. He was very well respected and a leader in his community. Ned's main sin was refusing to surrender and take his chances in the white man's court. Once he found out that he was wanted for Maple's murder, Christie took to the woods, resulting in what's now known as Ned Christie's War. By 1889, the legendary Heck Thomas had located Ned's hideout and a vicious gun battle ensued. Although Ned was seriously wounded and his home burned down, he escaped, and the hunt was on yet again. Not that Christie was necessarily hiding, mind you. The man rebuilt, only this time it was a damn fortress up on top of a hill, double-walled with firing ports and enough food and water to withstand a siege. Guess Ned figured if they wanted him bad enough, they could come blast him out. Meanwhile, back at Fort Smith, the bounty on Christie was up to a cool one grand, which was about the equivalent to a little over 30000 in today's money. Just enough to entice a brand new string of deputies to come looking for Ned's scalp, one of whom was our topic du jour, Bass Reeves. Maybe. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Now, as innocent as Ned Christie may or may not have been, that was really no concern for officers like Bass Reeves. Right or wrong, their job was to deliver the wanted men to Judge Parker and just let the system decide their fate. That being the case, Reeves allegedly located Ned's cabin stronghold and, just like Heck Thomas before him, burned it down in an attempt to flush Christie out. By the way, this is part two and the final installment on the great Bass Reeves. Link below for part one, where we discuss Reeves' childhood, his escape from slavery, his employment as a deputy United States Marshal out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, and even his own murder trial. Today, we're starting right where we left off with Reeves' hunt for Ned Christie. And we'll also take a look at the rest of Bass's storied career, including the claims as to whether or not he truly inspired the Lone Ranger. And sorry if my voice sounds like it's wavering or a little off. I have been under the weather lately, but I am on the mend. Feeling much better, but my voice just ain't at 100 yet. Hopefully soon. Now that little info I just shared about Reeves burning Christie's cabin down, sadly there aren't many more details available. If it did happen, Bass went home empty-handed because Ned would continue to live free for the next couple of years. Nonetheless, I will share with you what I know. Per a November 1890 edition of the Vanita Indian Chieftain, quote, on Tuesday last, U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves of Fort Smith, with his posse, made an attack on the home of Ned Christie in the Flint District, who is perhaps the most notorious outlaw and desperado of the Indian Territory. And the outlaw's stronghold was burned to the ground. Supposing that the owner had been killed or wounded and was consumed in the building, the news went out that he had met a violent death. But Christie has turned up alive and may cause trouble yet is said to be on the warpath fiercer than ever and vows revenge on the marshal and his posse, end quote. 
I'll take that with a grain of salt, as just two months later, the papers then began reporting that Ned killed Bass. Per the Muskogee Phoenix in January of 1891, quote, Word reached here tonight of the killing of United States Marshal Bass Reeves, near Taliqua, Indian Territory, by Ned Christie, a well-known fugitive, end quote. This was reported by several other papers until finally, on February 21, 1891, the Ufala Indian Journal wrote, Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves lacks a lot of being dead. He turned up Saturday from the west with two wagons of prisoners going to Fort Smith, end quote. So did Bass Reeves really burn down Ned Christie's home, just like Heck Thomas? I don't know. According to at least one paper, he did, but I'm not sure there's any other evidence. Be that as it may, 1891 was a good year for Deputy Reeves. Not only did he put an end to the outlaw Bob Dozier, but he also arrested a longtime Seminole fugitive known as Greenleaf. Now, Dozier was pretty prolific in his own right. Guy was just involved in a little bit of everything. Stealing cattle, robbing stores, holding up stagecoaches, poker games, even fencing stolen property. A proper Old West racketeer. There is a dramatic account, the source apparently Bass's daughter, Alice, where Reeves gets into a pretty touch-and-go gun battle with Dozier. It was at night, during a thunderstorm. Bass kills one of Dozier's men before himself playing possum. Then as Dozier emerges from the dark shadows, laughing like a maniac, Bass pops up, rises the lightning flashes, and guns Dozier down. Okay, maybe, but the court record shows that Bass delivered uh, Bob Dozier to Fort Smith alive, and that he was later released due to a lack of witnesses. Of course, I suppose that could have been a different Dozier. As for Greenleaf, this is one of those guys we don't know much about nowadays. He's certainly not a household name, but by the time Bass caught up with him, Greenleaf had been on the run for 18 years. So notorious was he there in Indian Territory that folks traveled for miles around just to watch Bass march him into Fort Smith in shackles. Story goes that Reeves considered that to be one of the high points of his career. Now by this point, some pretty serious changes were afoot. For the first time ever, a court was established within the borders of Indian Territory, over in the town of Muskogee, and in the spring of 1890, the Territory of Oklahoma was formed. So now, in addition to Indian Territory, you also have the Territory of Oklahoma. It can get a little confusing, but from what I understand, Indian Territory, at this time, was what's now eastern Oklahoma. And out west, you had the Territory of Oklahoma. And of course, you still have the individual nations like the Cherokee Nation and the Choctaw Nation. I know that's an oversimplified explanation, but suffice it to say, times they was a-changing. For instance, the formation of the Territory of Oklahoma allowed non-Native Americans to legally settle on land formerly reserved for the indigenous. And it also permitted the opening of saloons where they were previously not allowed. As you can imagine, chaos ensued when entrepreneurs started buying liquor in the newly formed Oklahoma Territory, hauling it west and illegally selling it to the natives in Indian Territory. One of the rougher saloons of the day was known as the Corner, in present-day Pottawatomie County right across the border from the Seminole Nation. Our very own Bass Reeves was reportedly one of the first deputies brave enough to enter into the saloon alone, and it's there where he received his one and only gunshot wound, at least the only one we know of. A Dr. Jesse Mooney, who would later write two books chronicling his time as a frontier sawbones, was called to the saloon one day following a gunfight. According to Mooney, as he stepped within the darkened dive, he found Deputy Bass Reeves bleeding from the leg and half leaning against the table, revolver still in hand, 
and at his feet a dead man in a pool of blood, who was also clutching a six-shooter. When the doctor asked Reeves what happened, Bass replied that it was just another young man who doubted his abilities. Quote, he was fast, but like a lot of them, they can't shoot both fast and straight. End quote. In November 1891, Bass shot and killed an outlaw by the name of Ben Billy, who also made the mistake of doubting Reeves' abilities. You can find proof of this in messages sent from Bass to Marshall Yo's. More on that later. And by 1893, Reeves would be transferred to the federal court down in Paris, Texas, which at that time had jurisdiction over much of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations. As such, Bass would first be stationed out of the town of Calvin on the Canadian River and then Wetumpka over in the Creek Nation. Keep in mind, his wife and kids are still back there at Fort Smith, Arkansas. And being away from family for such long stretches of time, it's easy to see how things back home can get neglected. And that's no judgment on Bass. He was doing his duty, I'm sure. I get it. But nonetheless, by the mid-1890s, and without a strong father figure present, some of his children began acting out. In fact, two of his sons, Edgar and Newland, ended up getting sent to the Arkansas pen in the summer of 1895. One for perjury and the other for assault. And tragically, less than a year later, Bass's wife, Jenny, would die of cancer. Deputy Reeves, ever on the search for bad guys, does not appear to have attended her funeral, which, per records, was paid for by Bass's son-in-law. By 1897, Reeves was transferred yet again and began working out of the town of Muskogee, where he'd end up living for the next decade. And with this move, the nature of his job began to change quite a bit as well, with Reeves' duties now resembling that of a town vice cop more than a frontier marshal. Evidently, Muskogee was overrun with gambling halls and whorehouses, and Bass was charged with cleaning the town up. According to Art Burton in Black Gun Silver Badge, quote, The crimes that Bass Reeves was now attending to in the late 1890s were somewhat different than those he dealt with in the courts of Paris and Fort Smith. Reeves would spend some time in the saddle during his last 10 years as a lawman, but more and more he used a one-horse carriage or walked a beat. Moving into the 20th century, Reeves would eventually become more of a town cop with rural responsibilities. The days of riding his magnificent horses over the great expanse of prairie for weeks and months at a time, looking for desperados, was long gone. One aspect that did not change was his ability to catch criminals who broke the law, end quote. Now, eventually, a few of Bass's children joined him there in Muskogee, and in January of 1900, wedding bells tolled once more when Reeves married a widow Cherokee Friedman by the name of Winnie Sumner. Sadly, just nine months later, Reeves' 17-year-old daughter passed away from epilepsy, and then in October of 1901, his 14-year-old son, Bass Reeves Jr., would succumb to pneumonia. Disaster struck again the following year, 1902, when another son, Benjamin, found himself in some pretty serious trouble with the law. Story goes that young Ben Reeves, then just 21, came home from work one day and caught his wife with another man. Oh boy. As heartbroken as I'm sure he was, Benjamin let it slide, tried to do what he could to keep the marriage intact. Even confided in his father about it, asking what he would have done, and Bass flat out said that he'd have shot the hell out of the man and then whipped the living God out of her. That's his words, not mine. Unfortunately, Ben's wife would step out on him yet again, and taking his father's words to heart, albeit backwards, Benjamin beat the man to a bloody pulp and then shot his wife dead before possibly, and unsuccessfully, attempting to take his own life. Now keep in mind, with that version of events I just relayed, we don't have Ben's wife's side of the story, obviously. 
I'm just tossing that out there. When Bass heard what happened, he immediately hauled ass to the marshal's office and demanded the warrant. Said it was his boy, so his responsibility. Give me the warrant, I'll bring him in. The marshal at the time, Leo Bennett, reluctantly did so, and two weeks later, Bass Reeves returned with his son in custody. Or was it that very same day? Once again, there are conflicting timelines, and in one version, Bass simply arrests Benjamin at his home there in Muskogee. Either way, young Ben would be found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, one narrative you'll hear time and time again is that this was a testament to Bass Reeves and his unwavering devotion to law and order. That he was such a stalwart and dedicated lawman that he'd even hunt down and arrest his own son. Okay, maybe. Or maybe it's a little deeper than that. I don't know about you, but if my kid committed a crime, any crime, and I was able and authorized to do so, I'd much rather it be me that brings him in than someone else. Now, I've never worn a uniform, but I imagine it can be a little nerve-wracking arresting a murder suspect, or anyone really who's considered armed and dangerous. No matter how professional an officer is, there's still going to be all kinds of keyed up when it comes time to execute that warrant. And sometimes, shit happens. Also, I know people don't like to hear this, but you do have to take into account the times and the fact that Benjamin Reeves was a black man. There is a very good chance that whatever deputy arrested Ben, if not Bass, would have been white and, Indian Territory or not, this was still the 1890s. As respected as Bass Reeves was, his son was more than likely, statistically speaking, was not going to get the same treatment as a white man. That's just a hard reality of the times, okay? I'm not going woke, so calm your ass down over there, boomer. I see you cracking your knuckles getting ready to send a very strongly worded email. Just simmer down, Grandpa. Now, I could be reading more into this than there is. Uh, maybe I'm completely wrong about his motivations. But as a father, I do tend to think Bass Reeves, more than anything, wanted to assure the safety of his boy. At very least, make sure he got his day in court, right? Reeves knew that Ben couldn't hide forever. He knew the law would eventually catch up to him. That was inevitable. And I think Bass wanted to lessen the chance of any accidents from occurring. Just one ignorant podcaster's opinion. And I would definitely be interested in knowing what those of you in law enforcement think. Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. Speaking of law enforcement, I would like to extend a very heartfelt congratulations and thank you to Mr. Brent Reeves for his recent retirement after 32 years of locking up bad guys. If you're not familiar, Brent Reeves hosts the amazing podcast, This Country Life, over there on the Meat Eater Network. And I don't know the man personally, but after listening to a few episodes of This Country Life, I kind of wish I did. And I think you'll likely feel the same way. No, this is not a paid endorsement. I am a genuine fan. And he did recently retire. So thank you for your service, Mr. Reeves. It is kind of interesting if you think about it, though, right? Brent Reeves, Bass Reeves. Both men spent 32 years each working as law dogs, and they both operated out of Arkansas. Coincidence, or is podcaster and retired law enforcement officer Brent Reeves a reincarnation of Bass Reeves? Is Brent Reeves a time traveler? Is this new persona is a podcaster just a cover for what he truly is, an immortal officer of the law? We'll probably never know for sure, but I do think it's likely. Now, like I said, Bass's son Ben got life, but this would be commuted and he'd be set free after just 11 years. Whether or not his father's service had anything to do with this, I do not know. Now, just another quick word on race relations of Bass Reeves. 
Look, I'm sorry, but you just cannot discuss the most legendary black lawman of the Old West, who just so happened to have been born a damn slave, without also acknowledging the racial undertones. Now, first off, it is a common misconception that Reeves only arrested minority criminals. That is not true. Bass apprehended many a white outlaw, especially in those early years. He was fully a deputy marshal, and with all the authority that that entailed. And in that respect, Reeves wielded an enormous amount of leeway in a day and age that still saw black men lynched in certain areas, even for being perceived as disrespecting a white person. Be that as it may, Bass did see an enormous amount of positive change in a very short period of time. Born into slavery and then in just the span of a decade, Reeves went from being a runaway slave to a lawfully sworn deputy of the United States Marshal Service. He made good money, he was treated mostly with respect by his fellow lawmen, and he enjoyed a somewhat close relationship with the powerful Judge Parker. Unfortunately, whatever optimistic view Bass Reeves had of the future was somewhat shattered in 1896 with the Supreme Court decision in Plessy v. Ferguson. Long story short, a mixed-race gentleman, Homer Plessy, was arrested down in Louisiana for sitting in a whites-only train car. He fought the case, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled against him, stating that having separate facilities for blacks and whites was constitutional, so long as the facilities in question were quote-unquote equal, which, let's be honest, they never really were. But still, what's the big deal? I mean, why would Bass Reeves care about some light-skinned dude all the way over in Louisiana? Well, as it turns out, Plessy v. Ferguson had immediate, far-reaching, and long-lasting ramifications for all people of color, and it paved the way for a shit-ton of new segregation laws. For someone like Reeves, it was an enormous slap in the face, the highest court in the land letting him know exactly who he was and where he stood. You know, you're good enough to put your life on the line day in and day out, getting your black ass shot at all over Indian territory, but you can't even sit in the same train car as the white criminals that you're putting in jail. According to the Reeves family, quote, although the decision did not immediately impact Indian territory, Bass Reeves felt like he had been betrayed by the U.S. government. Reeves would now stand toward the rear at crowd gatherings and not be as vocal as he had been in the past, end quote. By the way, Plessy v. Ferguson would not be overturned until Brown versus the Board of Education and the various civil rights acts of the 1950s and 60s, decades after Reeves' death. Interestingly enough, one of Bass's own descendants would actually be involved with Brown versus the Board of Education. Stick around to the end of today's episode to learn more on that. And just one more little touch on the race issue and we'll move on, I promise. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Bass did arrest quite a few white criminals. This would change, however, as Oklahoma became more populated. Back in the 1870s and 80s, Indian Territory was about one of the most integrated places in all the United States. Be that as it may, following the Dawes Act and the formation of the Territory of Oklahoma, there was a huge influx of white settlers, and some of them didn't much appreciate a black man like Reeves enforcing federal law. You can even find interviews from the early 20th century with people talking about how astonished they were at coming to Oklahoma and finding black lawmen. I'm not aware of Bass ever being reprimanded or officially being told not to arrest white people, but in time he would do so with less frequency, even supposedly saying that it wasn't worth the trouble and that he preferred to work in areas more populated with African Americans or Native Americans. Just to be clear, Bass would continue to arrest white people. The official records reflect this, but just not as often as he had in the past. 
I think it's pretty obvious that Reeves was very much aware of the atmosphere. You know, you just don't survive in a rough land that long without learning how to read the crowd. Now, despite these changing times, Bass did continue to be employed by the By God United States Marshal Service. And legend has it, he continued to be just as deadly as ever. In the year 1904, Reeves, already in his mid-60s, employed an interesting tactic when apprehending a couple of Texas boys for murder, something his daughter would later refer to as the letter trick. Per daughter Alice, Bass encountered both men on the road and greeted them with a friendly, good morning, gentlemen, to which they replied that they did not speak to black N-words. Of course, not being the sharpest knives in the drawer, they kept on speaking, asking Bass if he was really the notorious deputy Bass Reeves. The aging yet wily lawman played it cool and replied that no, he was not. But I guess they weren't buying it. Them Texas bad men shucked iron and ordered Reeves down off his horse, asking if he had any last words. Bass did as he was told, careful not to spook him, and said that he had a letter from his wife and would they be so kind to read it to him before sending him on to meet his maker. One of the Texas men sneeringly asked what difference it would make, but Reeves already had the letter out and was handing it over, his hands quivering in mock fear. That split second, they took their eyes off Bass and looked down at that paper was all the time Deputy Reeves needed. In what must have seemed like a blur, Bass reached out and wrapped a giant hand around the throat of the closest outlaw while simultaneously drawing his revolver, at which point the second bandit got so scared that he dropped his gun, and that was that. Another two arrests for the record books. You know, I think in all the time I've been covering these Old West figures here on the Wild West Extravaganza, Bass Reeves is the only guy that just routinely grabs motherfuckers by the throat. I said it before and I'll say it again. If these stories are true, then Reeves must have either been insanely quick or just extremely fearless. Or both. With that in mind, some of these stories, like the one I just told, come from the Reeves family and thus are virtually impossible to corroborate. And the others come from various sources. Authors or journalists who interviewed Reeves, court records, newspaper articles, correspondence between Bass and the Marshalls, first-hand eyewitness accounts, you name it. As is the case with anyone we cover here on the Wild West Extravaganza, you gotta assume there's a little fluff thrown in. Did Bass really kill that guy at 500 yards, like we discussed last episode? I'm pretty sure he didn't. I don't even think the gun shoots that far. Did Bass really burn down Ned Christie's stronghold? I got no idea. Did Reeves really just routinely grab men by the throat, and then, while still holding on, he pulls his gun with his free hand and shoots their companions? Once again, I can't say, but it does sound pretty Hollywood, right? Sounds a little bit made up. I said all that to say this. I did get a comment stating that last week's episode, link down in the description, was fraudulent nonsense, and that Bass was no legend. That almost all the information about him comes from him or dubious sources, and that's why most smart folks don't speak of his false claims. Yikes. Now, I am not a smart man, that much is true. But to say that Bass Reeves' story is fraudulent nonsense is blatantly false. You can view the official records. You don't just have to go by fanciful tales you find on the internet. I've mentioned the book Black Gun, Silver Star by Art Burton several times already. It is chock full of credible primary sources. For instance, earlier in passing, I mentioned that Reeves killed an outlaw named Ben Billy. You can read Bass's actual message that he sent to his marshal requesting a writ of arrest for Billy's compadre. In the message, Reeves explained exactly what happened, how Ben Billy and his buddy put up a fight, and how he, Bass, had to shoot Billy twice. 
If that's not enough, there are also the official court records from later on during Billy's friend's trial there at Fort Smith. You can read Bass Reeves' own testimony at that trial, as well as his cross-examination, and you can read the testimony of the two guys who were serving as Reeves' posse-men. Bass Reeves was, irrefutably, beyond a shadow of a doubt, a for-real deputy U.S. marshal out of Judge Parker's court. For years upon years, Bass traveled into Indian Territory and returned with wagon loads of prisoners. These are proven facts. His many arrests are documented, as are more than a few of his killings. The man served in law enforcement for over 30 years, and as you'll soon hear, was even engaging in gunplay at damn near 70 years of age. I don't care who you are, that is, by definition, a legendary career. As is the case with all of these Old West figures, there's gonna be some embellishment. It happens with everybody. Bass couldn't read or write, so we don't have his own story in his own words. But if we did, I'm sure it'd be just as full of tall tales as were the stories that Wild Bill Hickok and John Wesley Harden both told. And as full of manure as both those men were when retelling their own exploits, their real-life adventures were truly the stuff of legends. Jim Bridger was a noted liar, right? Especially when talking to quote-unquote pilgrims. It does not mean that Jim Bridger was not a legend. There's no telling what kind of stories Bass Reeves told his kids. No telling what kind of stories he told news reporters. None of that takes away the facts from this man's long, storied career. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but on our timeline, we're already in 1904, right? Let's just take a look at a few documented arrests that Bass Reeves, in his mid-60s, made in 1904, right around the time that he allegedly pulled that letter trick. The following comes from official records, by the way, not from Bass Reeves or his family or anything dubious like that. January 15th, 1904, Bass arrests Jess Morgan for assault. February 18, 1904, Bass arrests Cornelius Graves for unlawfully carrying a pistol. March 11, 1904, Reeves arrests a Creek Indian with the awesome name of Dick Lucky for selling stolen cattle. April 12, 1904, Bass arrests Thomas Matthews for threatening to shoot someone. May 1, 1904, Bass arrests Lonnie Smith for assault with a deadly weapon. That same exact day, Bass also arrests Abe Drew for murder. May 5th, 1904, Bass arrests John Larimore for stealing chickens. A week later, Bass arrests Bob Johnson on a whiskey charge. And when Bob tries to escape, Reeves puts a bullet in his leg. This was documented. The following day, Bass arrests John Wilkins for stealing horses. May 23rd, 1904, 66-year-old Bass Reeves arrests five men in a 24-hour period for illegally selling whiskey. I think you get the picture, right? And this wasn't just some streak that Bass was on in the spring of 1904. This was the man's entire career, over three decades. Go back and look at the records if you're doubting it. Even all the way back to the 1880s. Don't believe me? Here's just a tiny sample. August 1882, Bass returned to Fort Smith with 16 prisoners. August 83, returned with 13 prisoners. February 1884, Bass Reeves brings in 12 prisoners. Two months later, April 1884, another 12. September 1884, Reeves hauls in 15. March 1885, 13. October 1885, 17. It just keeps going. All of these dates are just a fraction of the verified arrests that we have records for made by Bass Reeves. I don't know, but it doesn't sound very fraudulent to me. Once again, Black Gun Silver Star by Art Burton. Mr. Burton goes into great detail, and I assure you the records are legion. Is there some embellishment in there? Sure. For instance, I can't prove what I'm about to tell you. 
you know, you arrest that many people and you're bound to make enemies, right? And if the stories are to be believed, Bass Reeves had more than a few close calls with would-be assassins. Like what happened in November of 1906. Reeves was in a wagon, traveling after sundown, when he was fired on by an unknown assailant. Bass did shoot back, but he was never able to get a good bead on him before they fled into the night. On another occasion, in that very same area, Reeves was traveling with two prisoners when someone once again opened up fire. Bass fell back and played possum, allegedly, and when the wannabe dry gulcher stepped out into the open, Reeves bounced up and plugged the damn fool in the gut. I don't know if the man lived or not, but I suspect, at very least, to paraphrase John Wayne, he had himself a long winter bellyache. Skip ahead another year, 1907, right there in Muskogee, Oklahoma, USA, Bass Reeves was involved in his last known major gunfight at the age of 69. Nice. Per official records, a recent transplant from San Francisco broke several of the city ordinances getting high on both marijuana and LSD, while at the same time burning his draft card and brazenly disrespecting the local college dean. Bass, who reportedly had been sipping on a little white lightning, wasn't having none of it, and when he asked for a description, was told that the dastardly offender had long shaggy hair, was wearing beads and Roman sandals, and had a, quote, history out of making a party out of loving, end quote. An incensed Reeves quickly located the ne'er-do-well, drew his pistol, and marched him straight back to the jailhouse where he forced the son of a bitch to listen to several hours of Merle Haggard, which is exactly what should be done to you if you didn't catch any of those references. Sorry, I just couldn't keep saying Muskogee over and over again without at least dropping one reference to Haggard's Oki from Muskogee. Far as I know, there were no pot-smoking hippies in Oklahoma in 1907. But there were anarchists. I shit you not. And the true story of Bass Reeves' last gunfight is almost as strange as the one that I just made up. So bear with me, I promise this next part is actually true. On March 26, 1907, a large group of black anarchists calling themselves the United Socialist Club took over a house there in Muskogee and declared it as their own. What's more, they also said that they could take any property in town if they chose to do so. Their leader was a crackpot and so-called minister by the name of William Wright, who, in addition to teaching scripture and practicing voodoo, had also convinced his followers that they were not subject to any modern-day laws. So sort of like a turn-of-the-century, slightly more delusional, sovereign citizen movement. When officers arrived to evict the anarchists, they were met with a hell of gunfire, and deputies Guy Fisher and John Caulfield were wounded. Fisher was able to escape, but Caulfield just lay there, pinned down and bleeding out. The marshals, once alerted, showed up in force, led by the legendary Bud Ledbetter, and a full-blown gun battle ensued. The 69-year-old Bass Reeves didn't arrive until later, but he was still able to get in on the action and send at least one of the anarchists to the happy anti-capitalist stateless society in the sky before the fight was over. And no, Bass was not yet ready to retire. Matter of fact, just a month later, in April of 1907, he would arrest a murder suspect right there in Muskogee. A couple of days after that, he apprehended a young man wanted for assault. Bass just did not slow down. Hell, he even arrested the minister who, just a few years prior, had baptized him. I'm not kidding. The preacher in question had been called illegally selling whiskey, and Bass did not hesitate in hauling his ass downtown. I do find that interesting, though, that Reeves was baptized so late in life. Kind of makes me wonder if it was his first Duncan or sort of a renewal of vows. Whatever the case, Bass apparently had no qualms in arresting his own pastor. And let that be a warning to all you men of the cloth out there. 
All right? Don't be so stingy when it comes time for communion. Maybe don't hold our heads under the water so long. Now, the good times don't last forever, though, and once Oklahoma officially became a state in November of 1907, there was quite a bit of downsizing, including at the marshal's office. For the first time in over three decades, barring the six months he spent in jail, Bass Reeves was out of a job, at least temporarily. What long before he was hired on by the Muskogee Police Department and began walking a beat downtown. The local paper ran the following story on January 2nd, 1908. Former Deputy United States Marshal Bass Reeves, who was in many battles with outlaws in the wild days of Indian Territory and during Judge Parker's reign at Fort Smith, is on the Muskogee Police Force. Reeves is now over 70 years old and walks with a cane. A bullet in his left leg, received while in government service, gives him considerable trouble. He is as quick a trigger, however, as in the days when gunmen were in demand. I like the way they put that, back in the days when gunmen were in demand. And I really love this next little detail. As the article stated, Bass was walking with a cane at this point, but here's the best part. While on patrol, Reeves also had an assistant walk alongside him, carrying a sack of guns. And he was still just as cautious as ever. If someone yelled out his name or called out to him, Bass would quickly put his back to the nearest wall before even so much as turning to see who it was. As you can imagine, there was zero crime on the beat of Constable Bass Reeves. Now, he would continue working for the Muskogee police for about two years, but sadly, Bass's health began declining. Turns out Reeves had Bright's disease, which affects the kidneys. Ironically, this is the same thing that felled his old boss, Judge Parker. Luke Short, who we covered here on the Wild West Extravaganza a couple of years ago, also died of Bright's disease, as did Emily Dickinson and Booker T. Washington, just to name a couple more. So it were on January 12, 1910, after 32 years of service, that Bass Reeves finally hung up that badge for good. The legendary lawman was survived by his second wife, a few children, and believe it or not, his own mother, who at the time was 87 years young. Now, I tried finding out the location of Reeves' final resting place, but it looks like nobody really knows for sure. He was supposedly buried there in Muskogee, either at the old agency cemetery, which now is on private land and, from what I can tell, highly neglected, or in a small cemetery west of town off of Fern Mountain Road. As of this recording, his tombstone, if he even ever had one, has not been located, which I do think kind of lends credence to the idea that Brent Reeves is actually Bass Reeves. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying it's not impossible. Now, despite the lack of a tombstone, there are other monuments. Pass over the Bass Reeves Memorial Bridge. And if you ever find yourself at Fort Smith, Arkansas, you can see a giant statue of Bass right off of Garrison Avenue by the Fort Smith National Historical Site, where Judge Parker used to hold court. In addition, Reeves has been inducted into the Great Hall of Westerners at the National Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City, and he has his own star, which I personally saw with my own two eyes a few weeks ago, on the Texas Trail of Fame in the Fort Worth Stockyards. And if that's not enough, the legendary lawman has also been featured on a number of television shows, comic books, video games, movies. Hell, there's even an off-Broadway stage play on Reeves titled Cowboy. And there's more to come. Right about the time you're hearing this, that new miniseries Lawman, Bass Reeves, will be making its debut on Paramount+. Plus. All total, Bass Reeves would have 11 children, although many of them would die rather young. I mentioned a few today, but I believe there were others who passed before their father. And it's not clear whether or not the Reeves name currently lives on. 
There is a former football player whose two sons are also pro athletes up in Canada, uh, one in the CFL and another in the NHL, and they do claim to be descendants, which, I mean, kind of makes sense considering the quick reflexes and large size of Bass Reeves. These athletes have not been able to verify their connection. There are nieces and nephews, though. That much is proven. Bass's great-nephew, Paul L. Brady, would make history in 1972 as the first black man appointed as a federal administrative law judge. Brady would state that Bass Reeves was as much of an inspiration as he was a relation and that he's pleased more people are learning about his great-uncle and that the more people who are aware of him, the more who will be inspired by his actions. Also, as I hinted at earlier, it was Brady's aunt, Miss Lucinda Todd, who initiated Brown versus the Board of Education over in Topeka, Kansas. And finally, just as a somewhat morbidly interesting aside, but remember George Reeves, the guy who owned Bass up until he made his getaway during the Civil War? Well, George would later go into politics down in Texas, serving as a Speaker of the House, until he got bit by a rabid dog in 1882, after which he would spend the short remainder of his life inside of a padded shed dying just three years before the rabies vaccine would be invented. Now, before we wrap things up, I would like to discuss whether or not Bass Reeves truly killed 14 men in the line of duty. This number was reported numerous times, even while Bass was still alive. And at the time of his death, some of the papers were saying it was closer to 20. For what it's worth, Reeves' biographer Art Burton thinks the number 14 is conservative and that the true body count is even higher. Not everybody agrees, though. David Kennedy of the U.S. Marshals Museum thinks the number seven is a little more realistic. On this one, I really don't have an opinion. Uh, I did not go through and look at the primary sources for each of Reeves' alleged kills. But I will say these numbers are almost always inflated. If it's true that Bass only killed seven men as opposed to 14, well, I think we can all then agree that he was just a pussy, right? No, I'm kidding. Seven is still a very high number. Okay, any way you want to cut it. I'm not sure that Bass's more famous peers like Heck Thomas or Bill Tillman or Chris Madsen ever killed seven men. That's a lot of damn ghosts to be dragging behind you. Whatever the official number, if it even matters, which I personally don't think it does, there is no doubt that Bass Reeves was a dangerous man and definitely not somebody you wanted to go picking a gunfight with. Luckily, he spent most of his life working for the good guys. And as it turns out, he may have even inspired one of America's original good guys, the Lone Ranger. Or did he? Let's just go ahead and finally put this one to rest, okay? Here's the thing. There are similarities. As we touched on, it was protocol for deputies like Bass to be accompanied by at least one posse man while out in the field. And Reeves very often utilized Native American scouts, kind of like Tonto from the Lone Ranger. Then there's Bass's penchant for going undercover, sometimes even wearing disguises. A possible wink and nod to the Lone Ranger's mask. The deputy was also known to pay for his supplies with silver dollars, akin to the silver bullets that the Lone Ranger would use as calling cards. Finally, and I do think this is interesting, many of the men who Reeves arrested following a conviction would be sent to the Detroit House of Corrections. And it's there in Detroit in 1933 that the Lone Ranger made its radio debut. Does all that sound like a stretch? Yes, it absolutely does. I think many of these examples are tenuous at best. Reeves was certainly not the only lawman to employ Native American scouts, nor was he the first to work in disguise. And silver dollars were just a common currency of the day. 
Furthermore, the correspondence between the original Lone Ranger creators makes no mention of Bass Reeves. Instead, they write about how they wanted the character to be like early Hollywood cowboy actor Tom Mix, as well as kind of an Old West composite between Robin Hood and Zorro. Now, there are some that find the comparisons to the Lone Ranger insulting. They say that Bass can stand alone as a real historical figure, and that he does not need to be compared to a fictional character. Judge Paul Brady, Bass's great-nephew who we just mentioned, echoed these sentiments saying that it's not acceptable to compare Reeves to a fictional character and that he was a real man who never had the distinction he deserved for many, many years. Now, for what it's worth, this entire Lone Ranger story, it originated with the author that I keep lauding, Art T. Burton. In Black Gun Silver Star, Mr. Burton has an entire chapter devoted to this theory. But it's just that, a theory. I was not able to find any instance of Mr. Burton claiming that Bass did absolutely inspire the Lone Ranger or that he had any sort of concrete proof or that he was even necessarily married to the idea. Burton was just putting it out there into the ether and pointing out the various similarities. I guess the media did what the media does and ran with it as if it were gospel. And here we are today with my ignorant ass weighing in on it. Now, with that in mind, Mr. Burton, when speaking of the theory, commented, quote, if the Lone Ranger analogy will help people understand who Bass is and what he did and to make his name connect somehow, I don't think that's a bad thing. End quote. So no, Bass Reeves did not inspire the fictional Lone Ranger, but what's not up for debate is that Reeves himself was a larger-than-life figure. The man was fearless, and in addition to being held with both rifle and pistol, Bass could track and ride with the best of them, and he damn near always got his man. Make no mistake about it, not a whole lot of people could have done what Reeves did. The fact that he repeatedly, for decades, placed himself in the lion's den and went toe-to-toe with some of the worst, and the most he got was a bullet to the thigh, speaks volumes. And yeah, I'm glad he's finally getting a little recognition. And that's about all I've got on Bass, MF, and Reeves. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell somebody about the Wild West extravaganza. Share this episode with friends and enemies alike. If you're looking for more true tales from the wild and woolly west, head on over to wildwestextra.com and peruse at your leisure. While you're there, hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. And thank you for being patient with me over these last few weeks. I ended up going on a little road trip. Saw a few parts of Texas that I ain't never seen before. And I had very little time to devote to this podcast. And then once I got back home, I ended up getting sick as a damn dog. My daughter had it too, little damn plague incubator. We're both doing good now. And despite feeling like crap for about a week, it was good disconnecting for a few days. I think a nice short reset is in order every now and then. Now, I just mentioned going on a little short trip. Would you believe that along the way, Daddy stopped at the Brushy Bill Roberts Museum over in Heiko, Texas? Yes, I did. I will say that the ladies working inside were very nice. They also had a lot of cool old uh, military memorabilia. And then when you get to the Brushy Bill section, it's about what you would imagine. A lot of photos of Brushy and a ton of fake Billy the Kid photos. Literally, like every unauthenticated picture of Billy the Kid that you can imagine was there. They did have a couple of old knives that Brushy once owned. Those were kind of cool. And a couple of photos of Emilio Estevez. Apparently, he must have visited the museum at some point in the past. All in all, not a bad experience. And no, I did not go in there arguing about brushy damn Bill Roberts. I was just being a nice little tourist. 
And this next part is not a paid endorsement, but I got to give a shout out to the restaurant directly across the street. A little place called the Chop House. Best damn cheeseburger I have ever had in my entire life. Yes, I am the white trash guy that goes to a restaurant and orders a cheeseburger. Y'all, they gave me my Topo Chico in a wine glass. And in my book, that's classy. I did sample their collard greens. Delicious. And I had some fried green tomatoes as an appetizer. Also delicious. If you're ever in Heiko, Texas, stop by the Chop House and get you some of that good food. And tell them Josh from the Wild West Extravaganza sent you because if I'm ever back in that area, I'm trying to eat again for free. I ain't going to lie. All right. I think that's all I got this week. Till next time, try not to own any slaves and then arm the slaves and then take them off to war and get a surprised look on your face when they slap the shit out of you and make a run for freedom. Also, don't go hurting no puppies. Adios. Hey, we'll get back to the story in just a moment. But first, I got to be honest with you. I'm doing this full time now. The Wild West Extravaganza is, as we speak, my job. And to tell you the truth, this is sort of a gamble. I'm gambling on myself, and I'm gambling on you. To make this work, and to continue bringing you true tales from the wild and woolly west, in an unfiltered and uncensored fashion, I'm going to need your support. And at this moment, the absolute best way you can support the Wild West extravaganza is by becoming a member of Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Not only will you get to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free, but you'll gain early access before anyone else. you also get bonus content. There is currently Wild West Extravaganza content on Into History that you cannot hear anywhere else, not even on Patreon. And there's a lot more to come. You'll also get to participate in the book club, the community forum, the upcoming live streaming events, and best of all, you won't have to hear my annoying-ass voice break into the middle of a story like I'm doing right now. And guess what? You also get everything I just mentioned from all the other shows in the Into History universe, offering the same perks. Come on, what are you waiting for? Go to IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra to become a member today. I love you, and thank you very much for assisting me in helping to keep the Old West alive. Back to the show. Nice.